Well, this morning I thought we would kick off things a little differently. That is, we are going to begin today with what I'm going to call a bit of a gratitude check. A gratitude check. Yeah, that sounds like what my mom used to say. Danny, I think you need an attitude check. And so we're going to have a gratitude check this morning. Now, before you roll your eyes, uh, let me just state very clearly and up front that this little exercise, indeed this entire sermon, is really more for my heart than for yours. I think we all need to hear this. Um, so we're going to have a little bit of a gratitude check together. Now, a few weeks back, as I was driving between appointments and visits, I was listening to a sermon by Pastor Alistair Begg. I'm not sure if you know that name. I hope you do know that name. Uh, He's one of the better ones you could be listening to on the radio or on a podcast these days. When a certain advertisement came on his channel uh, concerning a book from an author that I didn't know, the author's name is Dustin Crow, and the book was entitled, The Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks. The Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks subtitled, Reclaiming the Gifts of a Lost Spiritual Discipline. And immediately my mind went to many of you. No, 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 not not really. Uh, But immediately I thought about my own current predisposition to periodic grumbling and complaining. And given the fact that I highly doubt in a room this large that I'm the only one in this congregation who suffers from this pitiable chronic heart condition, I immediately ordered a copy of Brother Crow's book, and have consumed it joyfully over these last two weeks. I highly recommend that book. You can find it at Truth For Life uh, Ministry, which is Alistair Begg's ministry. Well, The Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks opens with what Pastor Crow himself calls a gratitude quiz. And I want to share just a sampling of those questions with you this morning, and I want you to get a hand out. If your hands are in your pockets, I don't know why they would be, but at least have one or two hands out. As I read these questions, if, um, if you fall under A, give yourself a point. If you fall under B, you don't get a point, okay? So uh, it'll become apparent in just a moment. This is going to help us get our minds oriented in a direction of gratitude and against discontentment. A, you get a point. B, you don't get a point. Number one, do you more often, A, remember God's blessings in your life, or B, forget them? You don't have to show your fingers quite yet. Keep them down low, especially if you've got no, put them really low. Number two, when things, don't, when things don't go your way, do you typically A, respond in gratitude, or B, by grumbling? Now, guys, remember, you're in church, okay? Don't, don't, be, don't be lying here. Number three, would you say that you tell God thanks, A, on a daily basis, or B, less than daily? Four, Is thanksgiving, A, a noticeable part of your personal prayer life, or B, only a small part of your prayer life, A or B? Five, would you describe yourself more often as A, content, or B, discontent? Hopefully some hands are filling up. Just two more. Do you often, A, tell others the reasons why you are grateful, or B, rarely talk about why you're grateful at all? And then lastly... When circumstances are difficult, do you, A, still find things to be thankful for, or B, stop giving thanks altogether? Now, let me ask if there's anyone with a fist full of gratitude in the room. Anybody have five hands? Five five hands. Hopefully you don't. (laughs) If you have five hands, then somebody's got a problem. I'm not sure who. I certainly know that I have a problem. Um, Anybody have five fingers? Oh, we have some very grateful people. Good for you. Good for you. You can go ahead and walk on out. You don't need the rest of the message, (laughs) evidently, this morning. 
<laughs> Next Sunday's sermon is on honesty, by the way. Come back for that one. Well, that's just a sampling of maybe 17 or so questions at the beginning of this helpful little book. I encourage you to pick maybe up a copy of it. But it helps maybe to probe around, to, to poke at our hearts a little bit this morning, because I've found, at least in my own life and experience, that most men and women, boys and girls, young and old, in general, often trend towards ingratitude rather than gratitude. That's our natural bent. That is, we tend to mumble and murmur. We tend to grumble and complain far more frequently and far more often than we do stop to give thanks and praise to God for the many, many and manifold blessings that he gives to us in Christ. Maybe that's just me, but I doubt it. And so today, folks, I want to try to draw upon a few ancient resources, a couple of refreshing pools of heavenly wisdom in order to address a common, contemporary, and pervasively earthly problem known as the problem of discontentment, the problem of discontentment. Now, one of these helpful pools is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Our brother Mike Little John read a portion. We're going to look at several passages in Philippians together this morning. But Mike read from Philippians chapter 2, which is where this sort of sprung off for me in my office over the last couple of weeks as I was preparing for this little short Thanksgiving series. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through verse 16. Once again, the apostle Paul to the Gentiles, he writes these words, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The NIV translates that second word there, complaining. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Why? Verse 15 addresses that, in order that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud, Pastor Paul, church planner Paul may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Listen, Paul is basically saying here that as Christians, we are to be an otherworldly sort of people. We are to be different from the world. And the sounds that come from our lives are one indication of just how different we should be. That is to say, our feet may be planted here on earth, but our minds and our hearts ought to be fixated on heaven above. That reminds me of what Paul says over in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where he says to the church, set your minds on things above and not on the earth, for you have died. You have died through faith in the gospel, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, as Christians, because of God's grace and due to our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, people who are saved are to stick out and to shine forth, not because they grumble or complain, but because they don't. We are to be different in what is absent in this context here. The sounds coming out of the church or individual Christians ought to be sounds of humble gratitude and holy contentment, not unholy grumbling and hellish discontentment. Our quiet contentment in Christ really ought to speak volumes for our lives and our faith in Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the Greek word translated grumbling there in Philippians 2.14 is a fun onomatopoetic, I've been working on that word all week long, onomatopoetic word, that simply means a word that sounds, that is written just as it sounds, this is a fun one, say this after me, gongusmus, 
Gongosmos. That's the word in the Greek. It sounds like a, you're grumbling about something. Well, John MacArthur's commentary states helpfully that this verb, gongosmos, sounds like the guttural muttering sounds people often make when they themselves are disgruntled. I think I've heard that sound somewhere here before in the church. It is a negative response to something unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing, arising from the self-centered notion that the experience is undeserved. We grumble especially when something happens that we don't like and we think we don't deserve it. Let's be honest, we don't really need so much a description or a definition of discontentment, do we? I think we all have that figured out. The other term, disputing, by the way, it's translated arguing or complaining in some translations, has more to do with an inner reasoning, an argumentative interpersonal dialogue or speech happening between people. Fact is, we don't often keep our gripes to ourselves, and that's what that word disputing really gets at. You see, Paul realized that the church in the prominent city of Philippi back in his ancient day was encountering certain great physical and spiritual difficulties and that even greater hardships and persecution was soon to break out on account of their confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so he challenged these believers to endure such inconveniences, such tremendous hardships, not by grumbling, but by being grateful with a humble, holy, and truly thankful heart. And isn't that such a, con, a, a revolutionary, even a, a countercultural way of dealing with that? Listen, when the going gets tough, the tough don't grumble. Rather, they hold fast to the word of life, at least in the gospel, the life-changing truth about Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection from the grave. And then they, hopefully we, live with gratitude day in and day out for the grace and loving kindness of God. It's evident to me, at least, that Paul wanted these early Philippian Christians to have a sort of gratitude check here in his book. I want to invite you to stick a piece of paper, maybe a pen, or even just a finger, a digit there. You have, uh, how many, five hands, so that's 50 fingers, apparently some of you have. You can go all over the place this morning. And uh, flip over to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs chapter 15. It's really interesting to me, and I spent quite a bit of time this week thumbing through the book of Proverbs, that this book repeatedly warns us against the dangers of discontentment. The dangers of discontentment by putting forward the positive principles of the better life of contentment. Corey Ten Boom, some of you know that name, the great Danish missionary even, Holocaust survivor herself who helped many Jewish people. She was actually arrested and put into a concentration camp. She, Corey Timboom, is famous for saying, if you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you will be at rest. That's a good statement. Well, the book of Proverbs, according to Solomon, many of them says that discontentment and idle grumbling makes you bitter, not better. It makes you bitter. You never notice that ingratitude actually robs you. It robs yourself. It doesn't hurt somebody else. It hurts you when you grumble and complain and argue. But rather, being grateful, finding true contentment in the right places and resources makes one eternally better. And I want to focus on that word better for a moment. Proverbs 15, verse 16. I'm going to rattle off a few Proverbs to you this morning. Proverbs 15, verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than 
great treasure and trouble with it. What would you rather have? A, a little bit of possessions and a lot of the conscious presence of Christ or a lot of possessions without the Lord? This is similar to another biblical proverb in chapter 16, verse 8, that says, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The wisdom of Solomon is this, more money, more problems. Amen? Some of you I already know right now are thinking, I'd like to have that kind of problem this morning. More money, more problems. Well, King Solomon himself surely knew this because he puts it over in Ecclesiastes, who the book that he also wrote, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. The point, again, is that we need to beware of the heart attitude, the heart posture, the heart temptation that says, never enough. It's not enough. I need more. I need more. I need more. The heart that's never truly satisfied. See, faith in God agrees with the otherworldly wisdom, the heavenly wisdom that's from above, that what Proverbs 15, 17 says, that better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted ox and hatred with it. Think about that verse this Thanksgiving when you're seated around the table filled with food. But what is the atmosphere around the table? Is it griping and grumbling and inconvenience and annoyance? It ought not be. Proverbs 19, verse 23 is a great verse to consider here. It says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. That idea of resting satisfied is exactly what we mean when we're using the word contentment this morning. It shows us that the objective that we should have is contentment, and the way in which we find contentment is a fear of the Lord, not a chasing after the world. You can have all this world sets forth on a silver platter and still not be content. Maybe the most common word echoing out of hell is the word more, more, more sex, more power, more money, more, not enough. Just give me Jesus is what the heart says, the heart touched by grace. Now remember, just for a moment, how an older, much wiser Paul put it to a young, far more inexperienced and impressionable pastor by the name of Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 6 through 10, there Paul says towards the end of his life with many miles behind him, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You know you don't see a U-Haul behind the hearse, as they say. But if we have food and clothing we with these, we will be content. In other words, we will be satisfied. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, Paul says. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Timothy, I know the temptation, but trust me, godliness with contentment is the way to great gain. Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Do not be seduced by the mirage of money or the 
uh, illusion of illicit pleasure that promises much but doesn't produce. Remember that godliness with contentment is the way to get much. Timothy, don't, Timothy, let Jesus be enough for you and remind those who you serve to let Jesus be enough for them. That's the simple summary of this morning's message, friends. Is Jesus enough for you? I love how Pastor Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite modern uh, pastors, he's nearing the end of his ministry, I'm sure. I love how Pastor Chuck Swindoll named our twisted tendency from Philippians 2 towards ingratitude and grumbling the thief of discontentment. He calls discontentment the thief of discontentment. He wrote a a book on the book of Proverbs called Living the Proverbs, in which uh, Dr. Chuck Swindoll says, The rich and the poor, those who want much and those who have much, and those who feel they need more, are all equally in need of the sage's counsel. Discontentment rarely has anything to do with one's financial status. Greed is a cancer of the attitude, caused not by insufficient funds, but rather by misplaced or inappropriate priorities. Some people will never be satisfied, no matter how much they acquire. Discontentment, then, is a thief that continues to rob us of peace and steals our integrity. It ever subtly whispers, more, more, more. You know what? I think he's right. I wonder what the thief of discontentment has robbed you of lately. Anything? The story is told of the great 18th century Puritan preacher Matthew Henry, famous for the Matthew Henry commentary that some of us are familiar with, who was literally actually robbed at knife point, I believe, while serving the Lord as a minister in London. However, it was Henry's peculiar, even otherworldly response to such an incident that is so unforgettable. Allegedly, Matthew Henry, reflecting upon that near tragic moment, stated humbly, let me be thankful first, because I was never robbed before. And second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. And third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And lastly, because it was not I who robbed. It was I who was robbed and not I who robbed another. Is that the sort of response that comes from you when a setback happens in life? When a car breaks down on the side of the road? (laughs) Or... Uh, when an unforeseen vet bill or hospital bill comes due, when somebody you know at work gets that promotion just ahead of you, is that how we respond? Again, what specific flavor of discontentment have you been chewing on lately? Because it probably is some flavor in your mouth. Is it an apparent lack of wealth compared to others? Is it just the right kind of work compared to a few? Is it an uninspired, even unfulfilling marriage that you are in? Maybe it's just a lean view of your own personal possessions. What sort of discontent trap are you facing each day? What more do you need in order for it to be finally enough? What else do you have to have in order to, in in addition to your life with God and Christ, and in addition to forgiveness through Christ of your sins, in addition to the active Uh, presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life? What more do you need than all you've received in Christ in order to say, I am satisfied in Jesus? I know it's hard. Ben Franklin has a pithy little proverb that goes like this, who is rich? He that is content. And who is that? Nobody. (laughs) 
He actually said that. Well, that is nobody except those committed, contented Christians. They are the ones who ought to be content. See, those who understand and appreciate the riches of God's kindness for us in Christ, the blessings conveyed in the cross of Jesus, truly should be abundantly content. We're the only ones that have a shot on this planet at being content. G.K. Chesterton once quipped, pagans could make an alternate, an alternate or alternative to Christmas. Pagans could make an alternative to Christmas, but they could not make a substitute for Thanksgiving Day. He says, for half of them are pessimists who say they have nothing to be thankful for, and the other half are atheists who have nobody to thank. How tragic would it be to go through life like that? So listen, true contentment in Christ Jesus is not about settling for second best. You might hear that. It is about trusting the Lord who knows what's best. See, God knows that until or unless we prize Christ above all else, we will not be fully satisfied. We will not be at peace here on earth. Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9 declares, It is better. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. See, that's the walk of faith. Again, Elizabeth Elliot, a precious and uniquely powerful woman of God in her day, knew a thing or two about finding her contentment in Christ. Remember, she lost her husband, Jim Elliot, to martyrdom. She said famously that gratitude springs from acceptance of the gifts and the conditions and the circumstances that God alone gives. Elizabeth Elliot knew that contentment is a result of understanding that God is in control and God is always good. Listen, this is the very same lesson that Paul wanted the Philippians to understand. To embrace by faith that, that death, as Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul wanted all of God's precious people there in Philippi in the first century and in the 21st century to discover the real secret to overcoming dissatisfaction and even daily discontentment. Do you know what that secret is? Well, let me remind you. It is not about rigid asceticism. It is not about mere avoidance of work or wealth or possessions or pleasures. It is not about accumulating as much of this world as you possibly could stuff in your bank. It is not about that. Rather, the key to Christian contentment is simply this. It is knowing Christ and seeing Christ and being satisfied with Christ. Where else does this theme of contentment pop up in Philippians? Well, there are several places. I find one in Philippians chapter 3. Here we notice that Paul tosses his own impressive resume and prideful pedigree aside in Philippians 3 verse 7 and following, writing these words, get a load of this, but whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Religious pedigree, intelligence, man's approval. Paul had it all, but he said, I give it all that I might gain Christ. See, we have to empty out our hands in order to be able to receive by faith what God wants to give us. Discovering our contentment in God's grace, friends, through the gospel begins by emptying out all of our accomplishments, by setting aside all of our accolades, by putting away all of our temporary achievements upon the altar of God's own love for us and letting them be crucified with Christ and His fully atoning death. You see, really, crucifixion, and specifically our faith in Jesus' crucifixion on our behalf and our willingness to be united with Him by faith in His death is the key to Christian contentment. If the world is not mortified, we will seek to be satisfied in the world. See, further understand that true contentment is not a matter of mere convenience. That if we just have the right circumstances aligned, like a, a, a crystallation in the heavens, we will finally be content. Do you think that's how God wants us to live? See, godly contentment is not circumstantial. It is, it is transstantial, transcircumstantial. It is Christ-dependent, not circumstantial. Learning to be content is the endurable experience of learning to embrace Christ's strength in any and all circumstances. This is what Paul gets at in Philippians 4, verse 11 to 13, where he says, From prison, mind you, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Brother, sister, have you learned to rely on Jesus' strength in any and every circumstance? I'm learning. I'm learning. I think we all are learning. See, grumbling and discontentment sadly places the spotlight on self Whereas gratitude and genuine contentment shines a spotlight upon Christ and Christ alone, where it ought to be. Again, grumbling is our native position. It is natural for us as fallen creatures, but gratitude and contentment is exceedingly supernatural. And it comes to the resource of Christ's own resurrected power in us. I read through Philippians maybe eight times this week. Rich every time. And two big flashing warning lights on the dashboard of my life came shining out this week. Two warning lights that I think are on the dashboard of all of our lives, whether or not they are illuminated, whining and worrying. Whining and worrying. Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Listen, the heart that is learning to be fully satisfied in Christ does not pout or whine when others get ahead. When somebody else's needs demand the day, you don't whine about it or pout about it. You joyfully lean into it and you serve. 
Putting others first, that is what it means to be content. Pouting when I'm not first, that's a demonstration of one who is discontent. Again, this is why I believe Paul anchors his exhortation that we really looked at at the beginning in chapter 2, verses 12 and following in God's activity of salvation. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2, Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, when I am removed from you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Then he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's how you enflesh the faith that you profess in Christ, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, Paul himself, we know, was content to be poured out in service for the salvation and sanctification of those saints there in Philippi. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So listen, don't whine. Paul says shine. Don't whine, but shine rather as a light in this crooked and twisted generation. And how do you shine but by being content in Christ? Someone helpfully said that grumbling and murmuring is simply an outward manifestation of an inward lawlessness and rebellion against a holy and sovereign God. Who's in control over those circumstances that you don't like? God is. Again, Paul reminded the Romans that God's wrath is being poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, including that upon ingratitude. Romans 1, verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor God as God, or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 came to my mind early this morning. Paul says to Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Paul was in prison, and yet he did not whine. Rather, he wrote and wrote a lot, proclaiming the secret of his contentment, his discovery of Jesus and his sufficiency. In fact, if you will bear with me just a moment to make this further connection, the word sufficiency or being content is the same word in Philippians 4.11 as it is over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Yes, that 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that we are all so familiar with. Verse 8 and 9 where Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in the flesh, that it should leave me, but Jesus said to me, My grace is your way of contentment. My grace is sufficient for you. It is the same word in the original. My grace is your satisfaction. My grace is your sufficiency. My grace is the way to be content. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friend, do not whine over your weakness, but rejoice. Rejoice in the occasion for Christ to be big and strong for you. And what about worry? What about worrying? Listen, just like whining, worrying 
so often indicates the presence of discontentment in our hearts and our lives. Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself says this in Matthew chapter 6? Consider that text, Matthew 6, verse 25 and following in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And remember, these were people who did not have lavish homes with large refrigerators and deep walk-in closets. He says, remember your life. It is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And he continues, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, of the book of Proverbs, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious. He says it again. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Listen, being constantly fearful. I'm not talking about visiting fear. I'm saying living on fear lane. Being constantly fearful over life's basic necessities could be symptomatic of a spirit of discontentment. Paul caps off his book in Philippians 4 this way, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And he got this from Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what will be the result? Well, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Faith over fear. Worship over worry. Dependence over doubt. What does Paul say right at the conclusion of Philippians, acknowledging his own supply of needs and God's provision for this church? He says, and my God will supply every need of yours, Philippians 4, 19, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. At the end of the day, friends, it's fairly clear, though very hard, that grumbling and gratitude for the child of God are in conflict. They're in daily conflict. We quite literally have to choose each and every day, moment by moment, either to be grateful or to give ourselves to grumbling. But I believe the choice ultimately is ours, but ours in Christ as enabled by the Holy Spirit to make the right choice. And what is the remedy to this problem of discontentment? We've named it several times. It is to remember and then to prize Jesus and his sufficiency and his goodness above all things. Until he is enough. You will not find contentment. What did he say to his disciples before he lifted off into heaven? Well, he gave them marching orders, but he also gave them a promise. It says, surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. Now, the writer of Hebrews picks up on that idea. And we come to a close with this. 
The book of Hebrews, this sermon-like letter, is closed in a very interesting way. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 in particular, contain a few ethical instructions for Jewish believers who are challenged to reaffirm their conviction that Jesus is better than everything else. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than anything. And it's very interesting that whoever wrote Hebrews says this. He says a word about contentment. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, that's the way to contentment. To realize that Jesus not only has provided redemption, he said, I am with you always. I am with you in abundance and I am with you in lack. I am with you wherever you go. The path to true contentment begins with choosing the right object or goal for contentment that's going to motivate your life. Either money and good luck, you will never be satisfied. Relationships, good luck, you will never be satisfied. But if it's Christ, if it's the glory and honor of God, there can be satisfaction. In fact, there will be satisfaction. Money makes a terrible God. Secondly, the path to true contentment is lined with the good and gracious reminders of God's ever-faithful presence, that he's always with us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, I think, is borrowing from the book of Joshua, as well as several of the Psalms, where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. As you go into that land filled of enemies, filled with enemies, it is God who will be your warrior. It is God who will be your strength. It is God who will give the victory for you. Friends, we can be content today because God is with us, because God is with us, and because God is sovereign over us. So are we confident in the Lord's presence today? I mentioned at the outset of this message, David Crow's book, The Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks. I recommend, if you have an opportunity, to reach out and grab a copy of that book. It started with a brief gratitude check, but it ends almost each chapter, and there's an appendix at the end with a gratitude challenge. Let me give you a couple of ideas of my own gratitude challenge. Number one, how do you cultivate contentment this week? Dig into God's Word. Dig deeply into God's Word. Find your way into the book of Psalms and find place after place. Psalm 9, Psalm 28, Psalm 30, Psalm 95, Psalm 100, Psalm 105, Psalm 118. Many places. Find a place about thankfulness and soak in the resources of God's Word. Because that's the only way to counteract what our natural thirst is for this world. It's the Word of God. We have to, we have to change our tastes by soaking in God's word. Secondly, journal or write out a prayer of gratitude for God's many blessings. Somebody has said, even from this pulpit, Dr. David Allen, who is the one who says that if it's not written, it's not remembered. He says that all the time. And it might be helpful for you to write out some of your prayers of gratitude and thankfulness, just to count your many blessings, name them one by one, write them down and share them. And that's the third one. Look for ways to share your gratitude, both verbally to God and to others, but also live your gratitude in service to others. That's another great way to cultivate a heart of contentment. But whatever you do, listen to Paul's admonition one last time. He says to us, the church, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent, 
children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. May it be so for us. Let's bow in prayer. Well, again, O oh Father, we thank you for your precious word and for the many, uh, many wonders and riches that are contained therein. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. I pray, O oh Lord, as we all continue to struggle and fight discontentment and grumbling, Lord, would you help us by the Holy Spirit to cultivate, rather, a heart that is truly satisfied in the Savior. Uh, help us, Lord, even this week to do some practical things to cultivate such a life that will both bring you glory and will shine as a testimony to the goodness of Jesus here on earth. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.